a research group uncovering a network of dozens of accounts on X, formerly known as Twitter, spreading what's believed to be coordinated posts with disinformation about the war, making it harder for people to know what's real. Because it has been so easy up till now. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Why? I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's, oh, we got more news out of Wisconsin. What do you know? Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, No Lies Radio, Verdon Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites. Blanketing Planet Earth, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us for another all-too-thrilling edition of the Bradcast. Glad to have you here with us, along with me and the delightful Desi Doyen. Yep, present. Are you delightful today? (laughs) I hope so. We'll see. We'll see. Let's start here. According to Wired.com on Tuesday, Elon Musk's Twitter, now rebranded as X, has banned the account of a prominent critic of Twitter after he published data that he claims exposed the site's embrace of the far right after Musk's takeover of the social media network last year. Travis Brown, a software developer based in Berlin, alleges his account was first suspended on July 1 of this year, several months after his data formed the basis of New York Times and CNN's uh, reports claiming that far-right influencers featured prominently among so-called Twitter blue subscribers. Those are the, the people or the bots that pay $8 a month for what was once a blue check verified system to help people understand who were the real people or media outlets or government officials, etc. And how thousands of previously banned accounts, including members of the far right, were being reinstated on the site after Musk took it over. He was banned on the service for having helped the Times and CNN report those stories. On Tuesday, Brown announced his decision to challenge his account's suspension 
in court in Berlin explaining, quote, this is a matter of principle. I think it's important that platforms like Twitter are not allowed to shut down criticism arbitrarily. I would, of course, agree. You'll be shocked to learn. (laughs) Timo uh, Velken, a German politician who represents the Socialists and Democrats group in the European Parliament, said, quote, Elon Musk likes to pretend he cares about free speech, but this case exposes that commitment as little more than window dressing. Well, that's putting it nicely. Uh, Someone who uh, silences critics and researchers, Vulcan added, by kicking them off of their platform, isn't a free speech advocate. No, he is not. Despite gullible MAGA and other far-right types who are shelling out $8 a month to one of the richest men on planet Earth, who have allowed themselves to be convinced that Musk is a free speech champion, well, he is anything but. That said, in addition to platforming Nazis and other far-right-wingers since taking over the social media service, as we have discussed a bit recently on this show, it has now become a haven for out-and-out disinformation, which is frankly the last thing the world needs right now amid the wars in Ukraine and in Gaza. And as the global disinformation king, Donald J. Trump may be set to become the Republican Party's nominee for president of the United States once again in 2024. So what, if anything, yes, we have complained about it, but what, if anything, can actually be done about any of it? I don't know. We will be joined shortly by longtime award-winning investigative journalist Russ Baker to kick around some thoughts on that and the immediate effect that it is having on the ongoing and relentless Israel-Hamas war. But first, uh, speaking of... The nation's top military and diplomatic leaders urged an increasingly divided Congress on Tuesday to send immediate aid to Israel and Ukraine, arguing at a Senate hearing that broad support for the assistance would signal U.S. strength to adversaries worldwide. The testimony from Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and Secretary of State Antony Blinken to the Senate Appropriations Committee on Tuesday came as the administration's massive, the Biden administration's massive $105 billion emergency aid request for conflicts in the two countries, as well as aid for the U.S. southern border with Mexico, encountered roadblocks. Roadblocks in our Congress? How can that be? (laughs) There is strong bipartisan support in the Democratic-led Senate for aid to both Ukraine and Israel. But the request faces deep problems in the Republican-led House. What? Deep problems in the Republican-led House? How could that be? New Speaker Mike Johnson has proposed focusing on Israel alone in his first proposal after becoming Speaker and slashing money for the Internal Revenue Service in order to pay for it. Because, you know, Mike Johnson and the House Republicans, they're conservatives, and they want to make sure that anything we spend is done responsibly and that it's paid for and that it doesn't further increase our annual deficits or national debt. 
at least now that there's a Democrat in the White House. But as it turns out, you may not be shocked to hear that the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, or CBO, estimated on Wednesday that House Republicans taking an axe to the IRS would both add to the deficit and decrease revenue to the federal government, which would be the opposite of the fiscal conservatism that Republicans pretend to believe in. And I know this is all shocking. Hopefully folks are sitting down listening to today's broadcast. <laughs> if you're driving while listening, please pull safely over to the side of the road for the uh, for the for the duration to contain your shock. House Republicans' Israeli aid bill, which includes what some credulous reporters, as TPM's Kate Riga quips, faithfully parroted as, quote, offsets to the spending in the form of the IRS cuts, would actually cause the government to lose out on $26.8 billion in revenue, and it would add $12.5 billion to the deficit over the next decade. That's right. To pay for the $14.3 billion for Israel that the White House has requested, it will cost $26.8 billion in revenue and add $12.5 billion to the deficit thanks to uh, cutting the budget at the IRS to collect tax revenue from, hoping you're sitting down again, rich people. That's some Republican math. The House bill and the uh, and new Speaker Mike Johnson's first legislative test was all bedoomed from the first, writes Riga, as Democrats are strongly opposed to linking aid to Israel with Republicans' decades-long quest to hobble the IRS. The IRS cut seemingly incongruous in a bill nominally focused on Israeli aid is just the latest episode in Republicans' never-ending thirst to defang the tax regulator to, yes, defund the tax police. In the late 90s and again in the mid-2010s, she notes Republicans ginned up phony scandals within the agency to justify massive cuts to it that left it hollowed out of personnel and bogged down by outdated technology. A weakened IRS then struggled to go after the very wealthy and corporations. Well... Isn't that convenient? Both of whom have the resources and legal might to make their money very hard to find and tax. A 2021 Treasury Department report revealed that the wealthiest 1% of Americans are avoiding paying as much as $163 billion in taxes each year. And since we tend to Calculate budgeting over 10 years. That means that the wealthiest individuals and companies are avoiding paying more than $1.5 trillion each decade. That's more than $1.5 trillion that could go to the government coffers to pay for programs for people like you and me or even pay off our national debt that Republicans pretend to be so very concerned about. If only the IRS uh, would be properly funded. And now Republicans are once again trying to slash the budget to the one agency that actually brings in money to the federal government 
to actually balance those annual budgets and pay off our national debt that the Republicans pretend to care about. This age-old Republican animosity against the IRS flared up again last year when the Inflation Reduction Act, eventually adopted only by Democrats, was moving through Congress last year as it uh, funneled much-needed funding to the beleaguered agency. This time, Republicans cloaked their intent to keep paying taxes optional for the rich in a fantastical conspiracy theory. You may remember it. They claimed that the new funding would enable the hiring of 87,000 new armed IRS agents who would then break down doors across the country, mostly of MAGA people naturally, and shoot to kill if they wouldn't pay their taxes. Remember that? This time, by linking the IRS cuts to Israeli aid, about as universal a cause in the American Congress as you can find, or at least it used to be, they tried to give it another shot at life. What happens now with the emergency aid, now that this scheme appears to be dead on arrival to pay for Israeli aid by cutting the IRS and losing losing out on tens of billions of dollars... Well, what happens now uh, to that money, to Israel, to Ukraine, to the southern border? Nobody knows. It remains up for grabs right now. Add it to the list of things that are up for grabs as it's just the latest quagmire in our dysfunctional Congress, thanks to far-right Republicans who, I must underscore again, are anything but conservatives. Even though the media still insist on labeling them as such... I don't get it, but that's what they do. They ain't conservative. And if you haven't forgotten, by the way, Mike Johnson's Republican Party in the House still needs to come up with a a full annual spending bill or at least a temporary continuing resolution in just over two weeks or the federal government will once again be forced to shut down. Happy Thanksgiving. I'm sure it'll all be fine. And uh, speaking of dysfunctional Republicans, and this is kind of amazing. One more before we uh, before we get to Russ Baker, uh, the extreme gerrymandered Republican controlled, at least for now, state legislature in Wisconsin, which we warned more than 10 years ago was becoming sort of the Petri dish for uh, GOP's form of new form of governance, their attacks on rights and freedoms and just against functional democratic governance. Well, that has now gotten so bad up in Wisconsin and so desperate that the state's popular two term Democratic governor. Because you can't gerrymander a statewide election, uh, Tony Evers, he is now suing the state legislature in Wisconsin for blocking the most basic of government functions. As AP reports today, Wisconsin Governor, Democratic Governor Tony Evers on Tuesday sued the Republican-controlled legislature, arguing that it is obstructing basic government functions, including signing off on pay raises for university employees that were previously approved by the very same state legislature. Evers is asking the now liberal-controlled Wisconsin Supreme Court to take the case directly, bypassing the lower courts. Evers said it was, quote, a bridge too far and, quote, just bull blank 
that Republican state lawmakers were telling 35,000 University of Wisconsin employees who were expecting pay raises to, quote, stick it. You can't do that, Evers told reporters at a news conference. That's why we're suing and that's why we're going to win. He argues in the lawsuit that committees controlled by Republican lawmakers in the legislature are being used by the legislature to, quote, reach far beyond its proper zone of constitutional lawmaking authority. Republican Senate Majority Leader Devin LeMahieu, LeMahieu, there we go, dismissed the lawsuit as frivolous, saying in a statement that Evers was, quote, working to diminish the voice of Wisconsinites by limiting the authority of the legislature and unduly strengthening his own administration. And Republican Senator Steve Nass, also named as a defendant in the lawsuit, accused Evers of attempting a, quote, radical power grab. None of that makes sense. Well, I I cannot, frankly, adequately explain how rich, when I saw that quote, that he was uh, uh, charging the governor with a radical power grab, just how rich that actually is, coming from the unlawfully GOP gerrymandered Wisconsin legislature, a legislature that, don't forget, convened a lame duck session after the election back in 2018, just before, uh, just after Evers was elected, uh, and just weeks before he could take office, while they still had then-Republican Governor Scott Walker in office to sign off on it, they convened a Democratic, uh, a, a lame-duck session to weaken Evers' powers, to weaken the incoming governor's powers by moving those powers, in many cases, from the executive branch to themselves in the legislative branch. So, radical power grab? These guys have repeatedly rejected appointments of the governor uh, to boards and commissions. Uh, commissions. They have fired a, a majority of the state's natural resources board just last month. And they attempted to remove the state's election director, who they actually appointed after taking away the governor's power to have anything to do with it because she refused to pretend that the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump. So they tried to fire her. Happily, the uh, courts have now found that the GOP Senate improperly attempted to remove her from her job just before the 2024 elections are to get underway, so she will remain in her post, thankfully. Those are the folks who are claiming that Governor Evers, by suing them to do their jobs, is attempting a, quote, radical power grab. In addition to not approving the University of Wisconsin pay raises, Evers argues that the legislature is blocking state conservation programs, updates to the state's commercial building standards and ethics standards for licensed professionals. You know, routine, boring, basic government stuff that most people pay no attention to that they are completely holding up at this point. The legislature includes a 6% pay raise for uh, University of Wisconsin employees over two years in the state budget that it passed earlier this year that Evers signed. But those raises must also then be approved by a GOP-controlled committee of legislative leaders. Uh, and in mid-October, that committee uh, approved pay raises for state workers, 
but not for UW employees because Republican House Speaker Robin Voss opposes spending at the university for diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. That's right. That would be the so-called DEI, controversial DEI you've heard Republicans of late being horrified about at schools and businesses because apparently they oppose diversity, sounds bad, equity, but that's awful. And inclusion. We wouldn't want to have that. Sounds terrible, doesn't it? Glad they're fighting the good fight for us. Uh, Evers cites the legislature's budget writing committee's rejection of dozens of conservation projects selected by the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources, which protects land from development. The suit also cites the uh, Legislative Committee, which has blocked rules developed by a state agency to update Wisconsin's commercial building standards, ethics standards for social workers, professional counselors and such. Republicans have worked to increase the number of seats that they hold, meanwhile, in both of the chambers of the legislature to near veto-proof supermajorities with their years of gerrymandering there. Evers and other Democrats now support a lawsuit that is a separate lawsuit that is now before the newly liberal state Supreme Court, as elected by voters statewide, uh, seeking to have that Republican drawn legislative map tossed out in both the House and the uh, Senate in Wisconsin in favor of one that would likely end up reducing the GOP majorities. Sad. And of course, that is exactly what is now terrifying those Republicans in Wisconsin and why they are pretty much stopping, you know, all basic functions of governance at this point. Their power is likely to be gone around this time next year or so they fear. So they're pulling out all the stops right now. Oral arguments, by the way, in that case. Uh, challenging those uh, those maps, calling for new ones that would be put in place before the 2024 elections that might finally give us legitimate uh, uh, House and Senate in Wisconsin. Uh, that's uh, scheduled to begin those argu- oral arguments on November 21. So hopefully that's going to happen uh, and uh, be decided in time to make a difference in 2024. Now, Evers is separate. His new lawsuit, he didn't bring the other one. He just supports it. But his new lawsuit contends that the legislature is effectively attempting to change state law without actually passing a bill. It contends that similar efforts by other state legislatures have been struck down by courts in Alaska, Kentucky, Michigan, New Jersey, Mississippi, and West Virginia. And if the court agrees to accept the case, the Supreme Court in the state, as opposed to letting it work its way up through lower courts, it would then set deadlines for arguments in that case within weeks. So uh, lots to look forward to in Wisconsin. Yeah, y'all are in in for some fun there. Well, you know what? Uh, Elections have consequences. And they just elected another uh, liberal justice to the Supreme Court. Finally, after 15 years, giving liberals a four to three advantage on the court. And so let's see what they do. All right, let's take a quick break here. We'll come back with something much less dysfunctional. That would be the conflict in the Middle East. And the man who controls much of the growing flood of disinformation about it. 
That would be one Elon Musk. Russ Baker joins us next right here on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Five major corporations now control more than 80% of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Baby, how'd we ever get this way? Good question. Baby, how'd we ever get this way? Let's see if we can figure out some answers. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Answers about what the hell we're going to do about it, not just how we got this way. As we detailed earlier this week, following the barbaric October 7 Hamas attack against Israel that killed at least 1,300 people, Social media has now been flooded with videos and photos that have made it next to impossible for many to distinguish fact from fiction. There has been a lot of real imagery and accounts of carnage from both the attack on Israel and Israel's week-long relentless response in Gaza that has killed more than 8,000 Palestinians, according to Gaza's Hamas-run health agencies, as well as independent sources. But that has been interspersed with users, particularly on TikTok and Elon Musk's Twitter, which he now calls X, flooding social media feeds with out-and-out doctored and misrepresented videos and fabricated claims about them, seemingly from all sides of the conflict. We discussed a few examples, such as false claims that a top Israeli commander had been kidnapped, that so-called crisis actors were pretending to be injured at uh, Gazan hospitals, that U.S. Marines were deploying to Israel, that Israel had bombed a Baptist-run hospital in Gaza, that Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un gave speeches blaming Joe Biden and threatening the U.S. Uh, after the uh, holding them responsible for the latest Israel. Israel-Hamas war, that Ukraine was supplying weapons to Hamas, all convincing fakes that were and are being widely circulated across social media feeds. We uh, shared them, talked about them at the time in hopes of perhaps preventing you from liking or favoriting or reposting a few of them yourselves or sharing them with friends and family, but mostly it was in hopes of helping you understand that seemingly more and more frequently these days, what you are seeing on social media may not be real at all and that you should be careful about the sources of the information that you share, if at all possible. That is, uh, that it's, it's, if something is too outrageous to believe, there may be a reason for that. To check some of the many fact-check sites and reporting that is available out there via factcheck.org, snopes.com, AP News, and others where such claims are routinely debunked. But of course, it's an impossible ask. I realize that as the amount of disinformation, as we've discussed on this program as well with disinformation experts like author Lee McIntyre, continue to increase along with the Removal of moderation tools and teams at Twitter, 
by Elon Musk after his purchase of the popular social media outlet. As McIntyre described it on this show, misinformation is an accident when false information is is published, sometimes by legitimate news sources, whereas disinformation is a lie, the knowing spread of false information. Either way, it's getting harder and harder for Americans and those around the world, naturally, to distinguish fact from fiction, none of which is good as two hot wars in Ukraine and in Gaza rage and as we enter a critical 2024 presidential election year with a leading candidate on the Republican side whose campaign and very career has been built on disinformation. The real news is bad enough, frankly. On Wednesday, just by way of an example or two, Washington Post reports an Israeli strike on a refugee camp on Tuesday has killed and injured hundreds in Gaza. AP notes the strikes are continuing for a second day as Israel claims that Hamas commanders are sheltering in tunnels below the camp, hoping to use the refugees as human shields. New York Times reports that At least a quarter of the buildings in northern Gaza have now been damaged or completely destroyed, according to analyst estimates. Though in moderately brighter news, as Bloomberg reports, the first foreigners have been allowed to exit Gaza via the Egyptian border. And as NBC details, uh, a trickle of injured civilians from Gaza have been allowed to enter Egypt in the first evacuations from the besieged territory since the Israel-Hamas war began as the humanitarian crisis there nonetheless continues. It is all grim enough and difficult enough to tell fact from fiction, particularly depending on which side of the social media algorithms you are being fed, whether you realize you are being fed by that algorithm or not, to see what the algorithm believes you want to see, or at least what the algorithm wants you to see to continue and increase your use of that social media platform. While mainstream corporate media is arguably a victim of the loss of uh, viewership and readership to disreputable, disinformative social media sources, longtime award-winning investigative journalist Russ Baker argues that in many ways they may have themselves to blame. In mid-October... A week or so after the Hamas attack on Israel, as Republicans in Congress were eating their own and as Donald Trump's continuing campaign of lies amid both his court trials and campaign for president reached seemingly new lows, Baker reported on his Going Deep newsletter, for example, on October 10, in rapid response to disinformation that Elon Musk was putting out about the Hamas-Israel conflict, that had just exploded. Terry Breton, a commissioner with the European Union and author of the Digital Services Act, passed in 2022 to regulate social media content for the protection of the public, fired off a letter to Musk. He warned him that failing to moderate fake news on X or Twitter could result in a fine of 6% of X's revenues or even an EU blackout of the social media platform entirely. The fake news detailed by Breton included disinformation about the Hamas attack, including the posting of misrepresented and repurposed old images and so-called military footage that actually came from a video game. 
But as he routinely does, a la Donald Trump, Baker noted, when confronted about the bogus information pervading every inch of his site, Musk feigned ignorance. Please list the violations you allude to on X so that the public can see them. Before the very next day, tweeting out a laugh emoji, along with a real video from CNN of a Hamas rocket attack near the Israel-Gaza border that included a fake audio track overlaid purportedly from a CNN producer meant to make it look like CNN reporter Clarissa Ward was being directed to pretend to be terrified of the bombs flying overhead. Well, look around, Jerry. Just look around as if you're in danger. Try and look nice and scared. Yeah, that's it. Catching your breath. Dead scary over here with all the bombs going off and all that. Okay, that's beautiful. That's the money shot. Nice and tight on Clarissa. Are you seeing our situation, guys? Tell her yes. Yes. Were you guys rolling on this? Yeah, we're rolling, Clarissa, but we're not live yet. Okay. We can't show the earlier bit because we want people to think you're in danger. Now, the footage and the bombing was real. The overlaid track of that producer was a convincing fake. Just days after the attack on Israel, as their response to it began, Elon Musk thought it was hilarious to tweet out that video to his millions of followers. As with Donald John Trump, Baker writes, the media screwed up big time, helping hype the Musk brand, which in turn enabled Musk's amassing of a far greater fortune and power. The merits of the companies he bought or started, while significant, have been far exceeded by the amount of hagiography heaped upon him. And now, like Dr. Frankenstein, corporate media outlets regret their creation, Baker argues, and no wonder. Not only is Musk basically a destructive narcissist, he's also a disinformation kingpin, a danger to domestic tranquility, to national security, and much, much more. The evidence, posits Baker, is voluminous and may be familiar to you, yet the details are well worth reviewing because cumulatively they show the evil purpose at hand. Joining us now to discuss that evil purpose and what, if anything, can be done about it is our old not-evil-at-all friend, Russ Baker, editor-in-chief of the investigative media outlet WhoWhatWhy.org and the author of 2009's Family of Secrets, The Bush Dynasty, America's Invisible Government, and the Hidden History of the Last 50 Years. Welcome back to the broadcast, Mr. Baker. Thank you very much, Brad. I, uh, you, you argue in your newsletter uh, that, that Elon Musk is now chaos agent number one, that he is, quote, fully aware of what he is doing and how much of a chaos agent he is. Um, are you sure about that? Is he aware of what he is doing? And I guess the follow up question is, if so, why then is he doing it, in your opinion, Russ? Well, you know, you can never be absolutely sure. And he has sort of strategically let it be known that he is somewhere on the spectrum. And then this is also mentioned as I think a bit of an out that maybe somehow he has some self-regulation issues uh, or some discernment issues. Uh, I, I think he does know what he's doing. Um, we've seen, and I'm sure you've talked about in your program, what his worldview is, what his political views are. Uh, and he is very good friends with uh, I think fairly dangerous figures like Peter Thiel mm -hmm. uh, and and others uh, from Silicon Valley fortunes uh, who 
exhibit a kind of a uh, uh, hankering for, uh, I guess you'd say fascism. Um, and they also a very big, you know, of course, Elon Musk said that uh, one of the reasons he was taking over Twitter was to sort of end the reign of wokeness mm -hmm. uh, and that that this was a uh, some kind of a uh, whatever he called it, a mind virus. Uh, in other words, the, the idea that for the last few years, there's been a rising uh, tide of demands for equality, uh, treating women with respect, uh, black people, uh, uh, transgender people and mm -hmm. so on. This is all seen by him and some of these others as a threat to what they perceive to be the right way of life. And so when he took over Twitter, one of the things he said he was going to do was he was going to undo this sort of woke propensity. Mm -hmm. And what he claimed was, of course, uh, he claimed it was uh, censorship. Uh, and um, maybe we'll have time to get into, you know, the uh, how he went about sort of trying to show the public that he was a good guy, that he was a knight in shining armor who was coming in to rectify things and also really to foster freedom of speech rather than a particular philosophical line. And let me ask you then about the other side of that argument, which is of your argument that is uh, like Dr. Frankenstein, uh, that corporate media outlets now regret their creation, essentially, of Elon Musk and the hagiographies that they, you know, wrote about this guy, created about this guy. Uh, I guess I would ask the same question. What makes you so sure that they now regret it? I mean, they're not leaving Twitter. They're staying on Twitter. Uh, you know, maybe they are, are bothered when their, uh, you know, their, their, their stories are misrepresented in some way, but they don't seem to be doing much uh, pushing back against it other than I think NPR, if I recall correctly, uh, none of them have, have left the service. They're, they're all still there, still counting on it. No, I get it. I mean, let's be realistic about what X or formerly known as Twitter, what it is. It is the world's largest public address system. Mm -hmm. That's at least the way I think of yeah. it. And you have to imagine that, you know, if you, you know, uh, run the uh, baking club at the school and you want to invite other people to come, you know, and there's announcements that they do every morning, you know, mm -hmm. you want to be on the announcement. Otherwise, are, how are people really going to know about it? Mm -hmm. And so, and so essentially uh, what has happened here is the PA system has been taken over by the school bully uh, or right. something like that, you know, and 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 also a bit of a, of a, of a, a wiseacre who's making all kinds of announcements. Of course, normally the school would never allow such a thing. They would have rules and uh, expectations about decorum and, and truth and, and precision and so on. But but that's all gone out the window. Now, the problem is and I look, let me be clear here that I personally I have my own uh, X um, uh, account. Mm -hmm. uh, it's called Real Russ Baker. Mm -hmm. And then our, my, our news, a nonprofit news site, Who, What, Why, also has an account there. And the reality is that we used it before he came in there. And this was a way that we communicated. I don't know about you, but, you know, for most of us, this yeah. is – we need a di distribution mechanism to let people know what we're up to. And so, you know, we don't always like these things, but, I mean, I, I, I love your show and – I think you and I see eye to eye on a lot of things, but I mean, uh, uh, you know, in, invited on a Fox, I would go on a Fox too yep. because it's another way of getting your message out. And so uh, I, I, I don't know we can blame them. I, I do think that uh, some of them have certainly cut back. They've also seen, by the way, a huge loss of, uh, uh, of, of, of impact from 
uh, X. Mm. And this is another fascinating thing. I'll just tell you, my, my traffic, mm -hmm. uh, my follower number was, was increasing dramatically uh, for a long time. It has totally flatlined yep. since I've been criticizing him. And I, I can't prove any correlation there, but I literally, and, and here's another thing, the, the, the number of bots on there mm -hmm. is incredible. And a lot of these things are coordinated. You see, uh, you'll see the same message going out on, on, on hundreds of these things. They're clearly fake accounts. I personally think, you know, who coordinates that type of thing? I mean, Trump always poo-poos this Russian, uh, you know, uh, effort business. But, of course, all governments do that kind of thing. And the Russians have been very, very effective in this country in wreaking havoc. havoc and I think they're getting ready to do much more of it in 2024. So uh, uh, that's a platform for good and for bad. And uh, I, I don't think what we want to do is is is. Uh, uh, you know, of course, I suppose if there was a guarantee that we would all boycott it and then he would leave. <laughs> but the problem is this is the richest man in the world. He has yeah. so much money. Uh, you know, it's not all his money in there anyway. And, uh, you know, you really can't control this man. You have no way of knowing if we all leave. I mean, is it then only the bad guys uh, who are using it? And by the way, I mean, the stuff is is it's so horrific. Mm -hmm. I mean, so horrific. And I don't know what you get, but. Mm -hmm. He's got these algorithms and things where he's pushing to me not only things that he knows I would like, but things seemingly they know that I would oh, not like. Oh, yeah. If, if you watch one of those uh, fake videos and which is why I'm sort of loath to even you know share links to them, if you watch one of them, you're going to get tons of them thereafter almost immediately you know the, the same crap and uh you know there was something that was in place before uh musk showed up the the verified blue check system it was not perfect but it gave uh you know at least an idea in general if you saw something from uh, an account that actually had a blue check by it, you could presume that it was most likely legitimate, that it was a legitimate uh, a media outlet or an actual person, a celebrity or a, a, you know, a government official. Now it's eight bucks a month and you can buy your own blue check. And people like me who used to have blue check don't anymore, which means that, you know, my tweets pretty much disappear, which is why I tell folks to follow and like as much as you can. When you do, if you do see my stuff, I am the Brad blog and the site I still call Twitter. Uh, Russ Baker, you note in your piece, the uh, the EU actually has rules in place that would allow them to either fine Musk for uh, failing to moderate false content or uh, even to block the service altogether in the EU if he does not. But, of course, here in the U.S., we have the First Amendment, which is supposed to protect free speech, even false speech. Uh, doesn't that mean that our hands, our government's hands, at least, are sort of tied regarding any sort of similar laws or, or regulations uh, here in the U.S.? Well, I, I'm a person who doesn't just automatically accept any such claims, including those who say we can't fix the Electoral College, we can't do anything about the Constitution. I, I think all of those things are actually up for discussion. I think they're much more technically compl complicated and that there are ways. I am not an expert, but I believe there are ways if there is a will. And there are, there, there are forms of regulatory relief. There are issues about monopoly practices. Mm -hmm. There are many, many things that can possibly be applied to him. And I would like to see a discussion happening now 
about this. And, uh, you know, certainly Congress, you know, they occasionally hold hearings and things, but it's all free publicity for him without anything happening. By the way, he was on Joe Rogan yesterday. And, you know, he's well, Joe, he's he's helped Joe Rogan get even bigger Uh and make more money. And so on. And then Joe Rogan has helped him. And and what they were talking about, I only saw about 10 minutes of it. It Mm -hmm. was entirely a free commercial for Elon Musk that he has created a bulletproof car uh, that uh, that you know really is bulletproof. And of course, because both of those men are stoking uh, fear mm-hmm. of the other, you mm-hmm. know, whether it's immigrants or it's people of color or whatever, because they're stoking that the audience then grows for these uh, for these bulletproof vehicles. And so he gets I mean, how much do you think it's worth it to be on the largest podcast of any for two and a half hours? What what kind of price tag would you put on that? And so he's just going to keep getting more powerful. Uh, he's going to keep getting a bigger audience. And and of course, he always plays this kind of ah shucks guy. He, mm-hmm. he, he has a kind of likability. He knows how to do that. He's sitting there on the show smoking a cigar and what have you. And, and, and yeah, a certain kind of person doesn't see, I think there are people who, who genuinely like sort of their worldview. Um, and I think there are people who also don't see what is going on, which I understand because their, their, their manner, uh, is very likable. Well, their manner is likable, but also, you know, they're repeating stuff that these people are already prone to believe. And, you know, we have a, a pretty good uh, a case study of that, it sort of seems, right now. We've seen a lot of reporting in recent days about, uh, you know, pushback against Israel, support for the Palestinians, demands for an Israeli ceasefire, particularly from young people on college campuses. Now, I have some concerns that that reporting itself is being somewhat overplayed by the real mainstream corporate media sources. But there is certainly a movement among young people in support of Gaza and against Israel, unlike what we have seen in the past. And it seems to me that uh, evidence suggests that a lot of it is based on while there are many legitimate grievances about all of this, but a lot of it is, 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 you know, being fed by, via the algorithms on Twitter and on TikTok and on Facebook, uh, that that's the information that they are seeing that is being, you know, when they open their phones, they're seeing that more and more. The more they click on it, the more they see. Um, How much of, you know, that movement do you suspect is brought about thanks to, frankly, the algorithms? Well, it's both sides. So if you take this, big controversy that now is being belatedly covered uh, by the media, which is these uh, posters of the pe- the hostages mm-hmm. and then the people tearing them down. Uh, you know, I remember getting something right away saying, hey, you know, these people are creating these posters. So people remember about these families and somebody was asking other people to help and support this. And and I, they were using whether it was email or some form of media, social media, I guess, to kind of get that message out. And then I assume uh, the message is about tear them down also went out over social media. And then, of course, uh, you've got, say, TV and so forth filming this stuff. And then those clips go out on social media. So what we, we've got is we've got a kind of a hair trigger situation. You can have instant reactions, almost sort of flash mobs anywhere mm-hmm. here at New York City. It seems like every day there's, you know, at least one demonstration that happens. And and you're right. I mean, it's kind of that if it bleeds, it leads. And so 
you, you, this may not, you know, 98% of the people in New York are trying to just get by there perplexed and disturbed what's happening in the Middle East. I'm mm-hmm. not sure most people see it as 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 black and white uh, one way or the other. Um, and and so, you know, I mean, the positive side, of course, is you, you learn, for example, uh, that sit in that uh, 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 Jewish uh, peace, whatever they're called, you know what I mean? The Jewish peace group, they had a, mm-hmm. a sit in at at um, at um, uh, uh, at the Grand Central Station, they took over the whole place, and it was mm-hmm. you know hundreds, and hundreds of Jewish people wearing T-shirts, basically opposing uh, Netanyahu. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know the positive side of that is that they were able to, to, to express themselves and get coverage, and then that was on social media and so on. Uh, so there's a good side and there's a bad side of this. We're not against social media. We're not against uh, empowering people to communicate with each other. But the issue is that there is a very dangerous side of that, and that's what. Uh, government is for that's what regulation is for is to make sure that things that are uh, uh, really transparently untrue uh, or 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 hateful. I mean, hate crimes are not okay, you know. Right. So it it really shouldn't hate crimes shouldn't be okay on there either. Well, that actually, and that uh, well, that brings up two sort of uh, questions or 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 thought lines here. We we discussed a a bit a, a week or so ago on this show with uh, I mentioned disinformation expert Lee McIntyre. Um, that while, you know, disinformation is dangerous, the question, you know, do we really want government entities policing speech? If I mean, I'm not sure if that is our solution, but uh, Russ Baker, would, would you want that, for example, if the government in question was actually being headed up by, say, Donald Trump? No, of course not. I mean, this this is a real problem. Um, and and this is always an issue. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we we kind of try to do these things uh, through a societal discussion and some sort of agreement on what seems to be reasonably fair, according to most people. And so I think whether it's a government doing it or it's some kind of a, a council, I mean, I don't know if you could uh, you could get uh, all the news organizations and the social media organizations, so on all of these companies uh, through an association or something to agree on practices and maybe that would be enough that uh, you nobody would want to be, you know, a, a deliberate a violator of what they consider to be reasonable standards. Mm. And that, I don't think that's been tried yet. That mm. might be an interesting approach. And the other point that uh, occurred to me uh, through through your comments there was that uh, you wrote a book on the Bush dynasty. And of course, uh, you reported through, you know, throughout both Bush presidencies on their various lies that brought the U.S. to war at least twice. Well, twice in Iraq and and elsewhere as well. But wouldn't those lies uh, that were told through the two Bush administrations, wouldn't wouldn't they have been much harder to get away with in the social media era where, you know, they, they might at least those lies might be more quickly uh, or robustly corrected or rebutted through the, you know, through through crowdsourcing social media sites like Twitter, et cetera? It's a good point, Brad. I mean, basically, everything has been sped, uh, sped up and sort of muscularized. In other words, the the Mus- lies... muscularized. I see what you did there, Russ. Uh, right, go I don't ahead. Know if that's a word or not. But anyway, <laughs> the 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 what happened is what's happening is that the 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 truth and the lies are have many more opportunities. Mm. And then on the other hand, the rebuttals 
have many more opportunities. Uh, although, as the famous saying that supposedly Mark Twain said, that uh, uh, a lie gets around the world before uh -huh. the truth can get its pants on. Yeah. Um, you know, this is a thing, and you brought this up earlier. Is that is that those things that are so salacious and so entertaining? Of course, they're going to pop in a bigger way than maybe a thoughtful conversation will. Uh, but then, on the other hand, it's it's always a small percentage of any population that really uh, is taking the time to get educated and to think things through. And of course, audiences like yours, I mean, they're rare and shows like yours are rare that really are, are trying to do the right thing. But it, but it, that, you know, in a society uh, where the rest of the people only know a little bit or not sure what to know, these smaller constituencies are extremely important uh, in, in, in helping kind of keep these things in balance. Finally, Russ Baker, you uh, argue in your uh, newsletter uh, from a week or two ago, headline, Time to Deal with Elon Musk as Chaos Agent Number 1. You argue that the problem with Musk's takeover of Twitter is ultimately about concentration of wealth and unbridled power and our society's failure to address the threat that represents to the public interest something that revered presidents like FDR and JFK understood only too well. If so, Russ Baker, how did they deal with those threats uh, while still respecting the First Amendment in a way that uh, might be useful for us to consider moving forward? Well, everything from legislation like the Fairness Doctrine to using the bully pulpit and Kennedy, of course, his life was snuffed out uh, prematurely. And by the way, at Who, What, Why, we're going to have a whole series with new information on the Kennedy assassination. I hope mm. people will take a look at that. Uh, but uh, the fact is that um, that Kennedy spoke up. I mean, even Eisenhower, you remember his speech about the military industrial complex mm -hmm. as he was leaving office kind of staggered everybody. Mm -hmm. yep. It was almost like a silence after because nobody even knew what to say. But then Kennedy, and we'll be writing about this on who, what, why Kennedy very much continued in that vein. And he said, he, he spoke openly about things like there were, you know, people who were members of secret societies and that they shouldn't be working in government, you know, mm -hmm. that you can't have a, a multiple loyalties and do your job. And, uh, you know, he, he really spoke out about uh, wealth inequities and he expressed concern. Uh, he took on a lot of the media. And by the way, even back then, I mean, most of the media was owned by these very, very wealthy families. The only difference today is that the amount of power and the amount of wealth that somebody like Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg has is is so much more concentrated. Mm -hmm. And the danger is that, you know, if let's say X or formerly known as Twitter was was owned by a large number of shareholders or there were a number of people who had big blocks of stock in there, you would have some checks and balances, mm. but you really don't even have that anymore. And that is very, very dangerous. <sighs> There's a lot of danger here. And by the way, as you as you were describing that, I'm not sure I could imagine uh, the blowback that would come uh, had, you know, if, if Joe Biden goes out right now and talks begins talking about uh, a, a new fairness doctrine or taking on these large media outlets because they've got too much power 
it almost seems like a conversation that can't be had in public. Uh, at least we can still have it on this show. We could still have it over at your site, whowhatwhy.org. Russ Baker is the longtime investigative reporter, now editor-in-chief of whowhatwhy.org. You can find him, yes, on Elon Musk's Twitter and we still call it Twitter, at Real Russ Baker. And you can sign up for his Going Deep newsletter, Going Deep with Russ Baker, at russbaker.substack.com. Always great speaking with you, my friend. Look forward to doing it again soon uh, in the days ahead. My pleasure. Thanks, Brad. You bet. Okay. Uh, well, I, I guess I'm somewhat disappointed that we didn't solve either the Middle East crisis <laughs> or the uh, long problem with uh, American media. And now add to that the problem with social media and how yeah. much worse it is making things. It is a huge problem and there are not a whole lot of solutions because all of the old tools are don't work anymore or they have been Done away with. Done away with, exactly. So I I have no idea how we address this. I mean, it's like the Tower of Babel to me. It kind of has those kind of vibes to it. And, and, you know, you may not be on Twitter. You may not be on Facebook or TikTok. You might be on one or other of the social media sites. But remember, you know, every one of these sites uses your personal data to uh, uh, make its algorithm keep you on that site. And that's why we have such seen this uh, proliferation of, of just terrible content because it outrages people. It's a, it's a rage farm. I'm still getting over the fact that you call the broadcast the Tower of Babel. So that I'm just going no, to have No, I call oh, Twitter. What? Oh, I see. Okay, well, that's much better. Yeah. I'll take it. All right, got to get out. Uh, thanks again to Russ Baker. Thanks again to our producer, Desi Doyen, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other, or you just want to share it with someone you know and love or hate, you can do so for free anytime at bradblog.com. We have no paywall at least for now, hopefully forever, thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us at least stay on your public airwaves. That's it. You can drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com on the Facebooks, Mastodons, and yes, Elon Musk's Twitter. <laughs> you can still find me at the Bradblog. We will see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Listening to the Bradcast. We are 100% listener supported thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com/slash donate. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1979. That was the day workers at International Harvester went out on strike. At the time, it was the UAW's longest strike. 35,000 UAW members at 21 plants in eight states downed their tools. For 172 days, Harvester workers walked the picket lines over seniority rights and forced overtime. They had long resisted mandatory overtime rules. 
Workers at Harvester were the only UAW members anywhere who still enjoyed the eight-hour day, five-day work week. They had no intention of giving that up, especially in the industrial downturn of the period that threw over 100,000 auto workers out of their jobs. Harvester argued the company had lost $1.3 billion in recent years because of work rules. The company hoped to force a concessionary contract. But six weeks into the strike, the company announced a 98% increase in profits for the year. Three months into the strike, Harvester hinted it would drop its demand for forced overtime in exchange for part-time hires that would be non-union. The company also hoped to do away with seniority rights in job bidding. Despite injunctions that limited picket lines, strikers were able to minimize scabbing and shipments in and out of many plants. At a plant just outside Chicago, striking local six members marched outside company offices with a burning effigy of hated Harvester president Archie McArdle chanting no forced overtime. Victory finally came in April. Harvester workers stood tough for months against company attacks in a period of massive plant and mill closures across the country. They secured seniority rights in job bidding and beat back attacks against mandatory overtime. As for McArdle, brought in to slash and burn the union workforce, he was fired.